This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. I do want to mention that this is a joint project with a longtime collaborator of mine, Sarah Bush, who is at Yale University. And we started this project, we started working together more than 10 years ago on this research that has now finally culminated in this book uh, that just was published in August. Um, Sarah and I met over a dinner at a democracy promotion event and we just started chatting and we didn't know each other before. Turns out she's from St. Louis and I'm from Kansas City and we were in the same tennis tournament um, in high school. We didn't know each other at all. Um, but we've become really good uh, colleagues and friends, and so I'm delighted to present uh, our book research as well as some follow-up work that we're doing that is brand new. So you'll get to see some of our newest projects as well sort of at the tail end. So thank you for the invitation, and I'm really excited to be able to share this all with you. So the problem of foreign influences on elections go all the way back to the Founding Fathers. Uh, So in 1787, John Adams writes this letter to Thomas Jefferson talking about the founding of American democracy. And he says, you are apprehensive of foreign interference, intrigue, influence, and so am I. But as often as elections happen, the danger of foreign influence occurs. And you actually see this worry about foreign interference in elections permeating the early days of American democracy. So this is something that is with us as uh, citizens and democracies going back all the way to the founding of this institution. So the question is, is John Adams right? Um, And our work says partially. So our work tries to identify the conditions under which foreign actors are most likely to influence citizens' trust in their own elections. Um, We note in our book that foreign influences in elections are common. So in the United States, we're now, I think, familiar with the idea of foreign meddling. Uh, There was identified Russian influence in the 2016 presidential election um, in the United States. And ongoing influence attempts uh, before that, as well as subsequent to that. In the United States, we also have uh, international election monitors that are present at our elections. The United States is a member of the OECD, which it has as a part of its mandate promoting democracy around the world. And so the OECD sends teams of members to go to other countries' elections to monitor their election quality. And as a member state, the United States is obligated to invite monitors to its own elections. Um, So this is, I think, something that Americans don't actually understand or are as aware of as election meddling, but we do have these influences on elections that are meant to promote democracy. On the flip side, outside of the United States, there are all sorts of concerns about foreign influence. Russia and the United States have been two of the biggest interferers in elections around the world, going back through the Cold War. Um, We also have tons and tons of election monitoring teams and organizations 
that have developed in the last 20 to 30 years that are going all around the world to monitor elections. And in, in nascent democracies or emerging democracies, citizens are highly aware that these international organizations and foreign actors are attempting to either promote democracy or undermine it. So these influences are extremely common, but not well understood academically. Um, another thing that is interesting to note is many of these influences are invited by countries. So Adams was mostly worried about sort of uninvited intrusions on elections. But these international organizations that send teams of monitors can't do so unless incumbents or governments invite them to their elections. Um, so when you're promoting democracy, you're only really doing so if there's a desire on the part of the recipient country to host you in their country. On the flip side, we do have some meddling that occurs that's uninvited, but we also have meddling that occurs that is invited or tolerated, right? Um, especially if it helps the people in power. Um, so Adams was mostly thinking about uninvited influences, but in reality, there are a lot of influences that are invited by countries. Um, to their elections. So what we wanted to do, that um, dinner conversation that I was talking to you about, was actually a conversation about international election observation and the academic research around it. And at the time, the main question that academics were trying to answer about election observation was, does it improve the quality of elections? So is there less likely to be election fraud at an election? when a team of international monitors is present and watching. But we wanted to ask a different question. So we, we thought, okay, so what if you improve the quality of elections, but the citizens are deeply skeptical of having foreign outsiders at their election? That could be bad, right? Even if you improve the quality, if you undermine trust by having these observation teams at your election, that could, basically offset any improvement you get in quality if citizens' trust is undermined. And so we realized that there was a big lack of academic research on the question of how do citizens respond to these influences. The same could be said about meddling as well. After the 2016 uh, intrusion by Russia into U.S. elections, there was a lot of worrying in punditry, on the news, about what this was going to do to citizens' trust in the United States in their elections. And there was a lot of speculation that it was going to cause people to turn away from elections, not to turn out to vote. Um, but in reality, we didn't have any data behind this. We didn't have any theory about why citizens would react this way to foreign influences. So we saw a real opportunity to study this and a real need to study this. So I want to tell you a little bit about each type of foreign influence that the book covers. So I've already mentioned a little bit about election monitoring, and then I'll talk a little bit about election meddling, and I'll talk about our approach to researching the topic and our findings. So here's a picture of what an election observation team might look like um, when they're observing an election. And I believe this was a team in Kenya in 2007. You can see on that gentleman's hat. Um, I'm not sure exactly which um, observer group this was from, but there are lots of different uh, election observation organizations out there. So I mentioned the OECD. Um, we have three of the top 
uh, high-quality, nonpartisan election monitoring organizations that are based in the United States but work globally. So the Carter Center, which is associated with former President Jimmy Carter, his organization does a lot of observation around the world and is regarded as one of the most high-quality organizations out there. Um, We also have NDI and IRI, that's the National Democratic Institute and the International Republican Institute. These are organizations that are not actually affiliated with the Democratic and Republican Party, um, although sort of at the time of their founding they kind of were, but they both do very similar things internationally to promote democracy, including election observation. So when I mention high quality and low quality, what I'm talking about is the procedures that these observation, observation teams go through. So election observation sort of started about 30, 40 years ago. And initially, these were international teams sent to observe polling stations. So actually how the vote was carried out on election day and then how the votes were counted on election day. So you would have these organizations send teams out to uh, countries, out to polling stations across the country and observe how uh, voting was carried out. You know, were there long wait times? Were people allowed free access to their polling stations? Was the voting booth private and secure? Um, So they wanted to identify any potential attempts of fraud as well. So kind of stuffing ballot boxes or preventing certain people from voting or trying to buy votes from people as they were coming into the polling stations. And then after the polls closed, they would stick around and observe the vote count to make sure the vote count was done according to international and domestic law. Um, Pretty quickly after this started, it became apparent that these observation teams, in order to really evaluate an election and whether it was free and fair, would have to go for much longer So if we think about the election cycle as not just including um, the election day procedures, but also including things like voter registration, campaigning, access to the media, freedom of the media, um, other types of institution or legal regulations around elections. Um, Observers realized that they needed to actually have a longer term presence in a country. So what you see is the high-quality groups adjust to this reality, um, expend more resources, acquire more resources to send um, bigger and longer missions to to countries to observe so that they can actually comment and evaluate the entire election cycle in a country. What you see is these high-quality groups then sort of split off from low-quality groups, which continue to kind of send very small teams, continue to just only go around election day. And in effect, I'll get to this in a minute, um, we've even seen what what scholars are, are calling the emergence of zombie monitors. So these are organizations that sort of exist in name only and are sent to countries or invited by countries that don't really intend to have free and fair elections. But once an organization with a democratic sounding name to rubber stamp or validate the quality of their elections. So in reality, these low quality groups are mimicking high quality groups in sort of name only um, and then issue these glowing reports about 
fraudulent elections. Um, so this is a very interesting dynamic that I'm starting to do research on as well, but I'll, I can answer some questions about that later. I won't talk anymore really about it here in this presentation, but um, I'm happy to talk about it. We're collecting a big data set of all these zombie groups, mostly because I just want to do work on zombies. Uh, <laughs> um, Okay, so what we can see here, I, I talked a little bit about the timeline. Um, so across time, this is the proportion of all elections in the world that have international observers present at them. So what you can see is, you know, from 1945 to about 1980, um, election observation is very sporadic. It's not really happening in any systematic way. But then you see this really kick off in the late 80s. Um, you see this huge uptick, and in fact, a woman named Susan Hyde, um, who was a PhD student here at UCSD and got her doctorate here and is now a professor at Berkeley, uh, wrote a book about how in the late 80s, early 90s, election monitoring became a norm. It was basically a norm for states, if you were having an election, you were inviting uh, international election monitors to your election. So that's how we get um, in 2015 um, and including up till the present day, more than 80% of elections around the world have an international presence at them. And again, our question was, how are citizens reacting to seeing um, people in their polling stations that may look like they're from their country, but may look like me or look like somebody that is clearly not from their country? What do they think about the presence of these individuals at their elections? And moreover, what do they think about the evaluations that they're making? So if they hear that an international observer has evaluated their election positively, does that increase their confidence in the election? And then if they hear that an observer group has evaluated their election negatively, does that decrease their confidence? We want to understand these dynamics and when we started this research, um, those questions had not been answered. Okay, so I mentioned the phenomenon of zombie monitors. Um, so we also think this research that we started about public attitudes can help to answer this puzzle as well. So uh, again, scholars started to document the phenomenon of these organizations that sort of existed in name only and came to rubber stamp the fraudulent elections of dictators. Um, and we think that that is because of public opinion as well. That dictators or autocrats that have elections, um, they want to cheat at those elections, but they want to have the legitimacy that elections provide them. And they know that if their citizens think that they only won by cheating, that that undermines their legitimacy. And so we think part of the reason might be that these zombie organizations emerged and are being invited by autocrats is precisely to affect the public and to increase the public's confidence that an election was free and fair and that the autocratic leader won outright instead of having to cheat and that this helps the autocrats' legitimacy and um, can help them stay in power. So, um, so we, we wanted to embark on this research also to try to answer this question about why did these organizations emerge. Um, so... Why do they, uh, non-democracies, invite credible monitors? So I should also mention that non-democracies, these autocratic leaders that intend to cheat, also invite high-quality monitors to their elections. 
So the question for us is why would you invite high quality monitors if you intended to cheat? If you know you're going to get caught, why would you invite them in the first place? And the question is, well, maybe you do that because high quality monitors, uh, if you invite them, the organizations that are sending them give you other kinds of goodies like foreign aid. Um, and maybe the citizens just don't really care what international monitors have to say. So it's not very costly to you from a domestic politics point of view. But from international politics point of view, it's quite good practice to invite these high quality groups because, you know, that sends the signal to the United States that maybe you're trying to attempt to hold elections fairly and oops, I cheated, but maybe give me some foreign aid anyway kind of thing, right? If you don't invite those high quality monitors at all, it's a surefire signal now that you're intending to cheat. So if you invite them and you maybe bury their reports or you don't let them go all the way around the country or your citizens don't care, then it's sort of costless for you to invite them and you still get those international goodies, right? Um, so we thought this might be an interesting uh, angle to research as well, that if we find that citizens don't really care about election monitors, then it might actually explain why these autocratic regimes are inviting high-quality folks to their elections. And then, as I said, it might also explain why they're inviting these sham monitoring groups. Maybe the sham monitoring groups are, uh, their reports are highly promoted uh, by the autocratic regime and the media. Oh, look, the Institute for Democracy Abroad has said we did great. Um, and so we're going to publicize this low-quality groups reports. Citizens don't know that they're low-quality. The name of democracy is in, you know, the organization. So let's promote them, and we'll suppress that high-quality groups report in the media, and we'll sort of trick our citizens into believing that this election was fair. So these are some of the dynamics that we were interested in trying to figure out if they're going on among the citizens. Okay, so how did we carry out our research? As I mentioned, it was a long time. Our first field study took place in 2014 in uh, the country of Tunisia. We studied the U.S. elections from 2016 all the way through 2022. Um, and we've also looked at the country of Georgia. We did research in the country of Georgia in uh, 2018 around their presidential election. So one thing that is important to the theory that we developed about when election monitors are likely to have effects is that they're particularly effective at persuading citizens when citizens have a lot of uncertainty about the quality of their elections. So you might think, you know, the United States is a consolidated democracy. When we started this research in 2014, we thought the U.S. would be a good case. Most citizens probably trust the elections here because we've been a democracy for a long time. And so maybe it's the case that election monitors don't have big effects in the United States because everyone thinks the election is pretty good anyway. And so there's not a lot of room for the information that monitors provide to change opinion. On the other hand, in a country like Tunisia, we studied their 2014 presidential and parliamentary elections, which were their first elections after the Arab Spring. So people in Tunisia had no idea what to expect out of their elections. They never had um, elections uh, that were free and fair in theory or had the possibility of being free and fair. The autocratic regime that was overthrown during the Arab Spring did hold some elections, but they were very clearly fraudulent and not fair at all. 
Um, so we think in this situation for Tunisia was a very likely case for election monitors to be pivotal in convincing um, citizens that their election was of high quality because um, they would there would be a lot of uncertainty about that fact. Georgia was an interesting case for us. Um, we coded them um, as a partial democracy. So they have some elements of democracy and then some elements of dictatorship. But the important thing actually is that they've had this status as a partial democracy for a very long time, um, over uh, 20 or 30 years, I believe. Um, and citizens there are sort of deeply skeptical about their elections. So they have pretty fixed opinions that their elections are pretty crummy. So they're kind of the flip case to the United States, which is, you know, the United States has relatively high certainty that their elections are good, or at least they did when we started <laughs> researching them in uh, 2014. Um, and Georgia's the flip side where they have relatively firm beliefs that their elections aren't very good. And then Tunisia's our case in between where there's a lot of uncertainty about the quality. Um, so we, we surveyed the public in all three of these countries, and we informed people of the activities of election observers. So we wanted to tell them election observers from different countries are at your election, and then ask them about how trustworthy they think their election results are or will be, and then whether they think the results reflect the will of the people. Okay. So our first finding is that we told people um, that election observers had observed the election and had either evaluated it positively or had provided a number of criticisms of the way the election is carried out. Um, and what was interesting to us is that at literally every country that we studied, every election that we studied, we couldn't move winners in any direction. If you supported the winning party or candidate at an election, you thought the election was amazing and nothing we told you about the election changed your mind ever in any of our sur surveys. I think we surveyed more than 8,000 people it, across six different elections. Nothing changed their minds. <laughs> so, um, but what's interesting and what's potentially problematic actually is that criticism from observers didn't weaken trust in elections um, among winners. And the reason this is important is because we actually want winners who now have the ability to make election reforms because they're in power. We want winners to have their trust shaken a little bit so that they make those changes in office. Um, so it's actually maybe somewhat troubling that winners are just completely resistant to any sorts of criticism about the election. And then unsurprisingly, we'll also show you that they're also very resistant to any information about meddling as well. So winners just, they don't care what you tell them about the election. They think it's awesome. Um, so here, um, I'm just going to show you some data. I hope that's okay. So um, in panel A, we have the election winners. And we have um, Tunisia, the U.S. after the 2016 election, the U.S. after the 2020 election, and Georgia after the second round of their presidential election. And all I want you to see is that for winners, regardless of if I showed them a positive or a negative report, they're all on that dotted line, which means their opinion did not change at all, regardless of what information we gave them. 
Now we do see some movement for losers. This is our sort of other finding. It's a little bit difficult to tell from this screen, but if you actually zoom in, we can see that negative election evaluations by international monitors decrease losers' beliefs that an election was fair. So that is okay, but what you would like is that they also update in the affirmative direction when they hear that elections are free and fair by international monitors. So why is this important? We want losers, even if they lose, to buy into democracy, right? That's the whole point of democracy, is that if you lose an election, you believe that the rules were fair and that you lost fairly and that you regroup and you compete down the line, right? Um, we think international monitors, or at least international monitors, think they're a part of that process, that they can help to bring losers on board when they lose elections and instill confidence in the system despite their candidate or party losing. What our results show is that this is not really happening, unfortunately. That losers have some resistance to positive information about elections. So that's somewhat troubling if you want to promote democracy. On the flip side, any criticism that you reveal about the election further decreases losers' trust. Um, so this is, again, kind of a troubling dynamic that we think international observers are going to have to have to deal with or think through going forward. Um, so another condition that we identify that we think is important here um, is that the presence of observers only increases confidence in elections when people actually trust the observers. <laughs> um, so I mentioned that there's this low-quality, high-quality dynamic um, so we think that individuals are only going to trust that observers are improving the quality of elections if the observers themselves are of high quality. Um, and we define quality as being both capable to detect fraud, so sending those big missions, sending them all over the country, sending them for long periods of time, um, and unbiased. Um, and this is very, very key because international organizations are highly politicized around the world, the United States in particular, right? So if the U.S. goes and monitors an election, or if a U.S.-based organization goes and monitors an election in a part of the world where people are deeply skeptical of the United States, those observation teams may not actually increase confidence in elections. They could actually decrease confidence in elections. They might actually think the United States is trying to meddle in the election through their observation teams. Um, so we think this is another condition that's really important, dy another dynamic that's really important to figure out. Um, and we do see some um, evidence of this. So here the treated group was treated with information where we told people that the monitors at their elections were highly capable and neutral. And we do see that when we give people that information about monitors, there's a slight increase in their confidence in the election relative to a control. Um, so you might be asking which monitors are perceived as high quality by citizens. Um, and here we have some really interesting results from Tunisia. So I mentioned in places where, for example, the United States or other Western countries might be viewed more skeptically by the public, uh, that election observers may, from those areas or countries, 
may actually um, be perceived somewhat more negatively by people. Um, and so in Tunisia, what we find, so on the um, bottom row, we see the probability of, of election observers being viewed as capable and unbiased. Um, and the closer the dot is to the right, the more capable and the more unbiased people view that organization as being. So the furthest dot to the right is the Arab League. Now let me tell you, the Arab League <laughs> is an organization dominated by non-democracies. Um, so it's sort of curious <laughs> that Tunisians would think that monitors from this organization are capable of detecting fraud when the countries that are members of that organization do not have a history of democracy. Um, but what we think is going on is, one, they do think the Arab League is a lot less biased than any of these other organizations. Um, and they also think that there are some capability advantages that uh, monitors from the Arab League have, such as culture, such as language, that might actually make them more capable than other organizations to detect fraud. Um, so it is the case that we have um, uh, some evidence that perceptions of how good or bad these monitors are changes across different organization types. And monitoring groups need to be sort of cognizant of these differences when they go monitor elections in other countries. Okay, um, so I already mentioned that we're interested in these puzzles. So we think non-democracies are inviting these credible international monitors, um, even if they criticize them, because it doesn't affect their winners. So if I'm a government and I'm going to cheat and I have my supporters that even if I cheat, they're going to think the election was great. And so it only affects the losers if high quality monitors criticize me, then I'm not going to worry that much because my supporters are going to be my supporters no matter what. On the flip side, when non-democracies welcome sham monitoring groups from non-democratic countries, our findings about the Arab League show this organization frequently rubber stamps elections for autocrats, and they might be the most trusted group in a country, right? Um, so this actually might be the case that these non-democratic uh, organizations um, are actually influential uh, among citizens. And so if dictators want to promote um, the findings from these organizations' reports, that might actually be convincing to some people. Okay. So those are some of our main findings in the book about election monitoring. I want to turn now to think about election meddling. So we really started this whole research thinking about election monitoring. And then a light bulb went off in 2016 and we thought, okay, well, we've been theorizing about these dynamics about democracy promoting organizations. Well, what about foreign actors that are democracy undermining? Are they affecting how citizens think about elections? Um, so we started to design studies to think about election meddling. So um, we define election meddling in the book as occurring when a foreign actor seeks to tilt the playing field in favor of a specific candidate or party. So it could be, as we saw with the 2016 uh, election in the United States, there was an attempt or an actual occurrence of providing information to um, one party that was thought to potentially harm the other party in the election. So that's a form that election meddling could take. There's the extreme of actually sort of stuffing ballot boxes. There's all sorts of creative things election 
meddlers can do. Um, they can, you know, um, uh, insert, you know, misinformation into media environments. That's another common thing um, that can be done. So election meddling can take a lot of formats. Um, the important thing about election meddling, though, is it's frequently covert. So you might be asking, well, why are we even considering citizens here? Because citizens are likely to be not very aware of election meddling if it's occurring. Foreign actors normally aren't that overt about their meddling. Well, we think in some cases they are because they actually want either their candidate or party to win, but they might also want to decrease trust in elections. I think that's something that we've seen um, speculated about around the U.S. election, which is that Russia was actually fairly overt in their meddling in the U.S. election. And some analysts have interpreted that as part of Russia's strategic goal in that um, influence attempt. So it was, well, I could either get my candidate to win or I could kind of mess with democracy and then, uh, you know, make Americans deeply skeptical of their own government. And that would also be a win for us. Um, so election meddling can be avert. We also think election meddling, even if it's covert, uh, there can be rumors, there can be allegations of meddling. Um, so it doesn't have to be the case that meddling is concretely known by intelligence analysts. It could be rumors, it could be speculation, it could be misinformation, and that could affect how people view their elections. Um, so as I mentioned earlier, um, according to a data set collected by Dove Levin, um, the U.S. and USSR meddled in about one out of nine national elections between 1946 and, two, and 2000. So this was something that was relatively common uh, during the Cold War was to try to influence elections and help one's um, favored candidate or party win. Okay, so we think meddlers' effects are going to be similar to monitors' effects. Um, the meddling may not lower trust in elections, except when meddlers are perceived as capable of swinging the election. So we go back to sort of the quality argument, right? So high-quality monitors are the ones that influence um, the elections. Those are the ones that are capable and unbiased. In this case, meddling we know is biased, right? So we can kind of set that uh, factor aside. Um, but we do think um, meddling needs to be um, high impact for individuals to really uh, be concerned about their elections. Um, so we think that's going to matter for our meddlers' effects. And again, we think the negative effects are going to be most common among losers. So recall winners, you can tell them anything. They don't change the way they think about the election. Losers have more questions about the election, right? Their candidate lost. They thought their candidate was the best candidate. So why did they lose? Well, it's not because I was backing a bad candidate. It was probably something wrong with the election, right? So this kind of mentality can make um, supporters of losing candidates and parties more open to information about meddling or um, negative evaluations. Okay. Um, so some of the interesting results that we've found. Uh, so we studied um, the 2016, 2018, and 2020 elections in the United States. Um, 2016 and 2020 were presidential elections. 2018 was the midterms. And we had pre-election and post-election surveys in each of these time periods. 
And in 2018, we asked them again about the 2016 election. So not only did we ask them about foreign influence at the 2018 election, but we also asked them to reflect back to 2016 and if they thought there was negative influence there. What I like about these 2016 election progression is that Democrats become increasingly convinced that there was negative influence at the 2016 election, and Republicans become increasingly less convinced that there was negative influence. Um, so this just suggests there's a politicization of um, even perceptions of meddling, right? Um, we can also see this dynamic where before an election, the parties are relatively close. So if you look at um, the 2016 pre-election, Democrats and Republicans are closer together in their perceptions of foreign influence than after the election, where Democrats become more convinced that there is negative influence and Republicans become less convinced. So we think, again, there's a winner-loser dynamic that's sort of playing out in reaction to these um, potential instances of meddling. So these patterns are, are worrying. As I mentioned, democracy does depend on the loser's consent. Um, and it also depends on the winner's commitment to the rules of the game. And, and we're finding that winners are not really taking on information that would lead them to electoral reforms that could potentially protect uh, elections from foreign meddling and also um, increase the quality of elections. Um, and we also find that losers are deeply skeptical and can be made more skeptical through foreign actors' assessments and foreign actors' actions. Um, these patterns, again, this like uh, polarization uh, about perceptions of foreign meddling could explain why politicians and democracies don't punish meddling. So if you look again at the U.S. case after 2016, um, the Republican Party did very little to actually punish Russia for meddling, and um, there were many attempts at reforming the electoral system to protect U.S. elections from foreign meddling that failed. Um, and so we do think that part of the dynamic that could be going on here is that um, if the winners expect to have an advantage through meddling, they may be less likely to actually initiate reforms that would protect elections. Okay. So why do we care about all this? Our research can also show that citizens' trust in elections matters for voting, and in particular, voter turnout. So if citizens think um, foreign influences are widespread and that their vote doesn't really matter, they don't trust the elections, they're going to be less likely to turn out to vote. There's also been a body of work that's shown that negative uh, confidence in elections leads to more post-election protests and violence. So this is a concerning outcome that um, necessitates our research. Um, and then finally, countries' trajectories in terms of revolution, democracy, violence, and stability can all be affected by citizens' confidence in elections. Um, and I don't think I have to do much more to convince Americans than to show, you know, a picture of uh, the violent assault on the Capitol in, um, after the 2020 election um, in, on January 6th. Um, so we really want to think about ways that we can increase citizens' confidence in elections where merited, bring losers on board if they think that elections are not trustworthy when they really are, and figure out ways to protect elections from foreign threats. So um, that is the direction that we're going next in our research. 
um, how to rebuild trust. And we actually have an op-ed that just came out in the conversation that's talking about U.S. midterm elections and ways in which um, election reforms could be carried out in U.S. elections to increase uh, citizens' confidence. Um, so some of the things that we've looked at in our research, these are by no means exhaustive of how to rebuild trust. These are just things that, from a research perspective, we've looked at. So first, um, thinking about ways to combat um, low-quality information about elections, um, in particular misinformation about the quality of elections, is important. Um, on the flip side, amplifying high-quality information. So um, this might be, uh, again, amplifying high-quality election monitors and their evaluations of elections and paying attention to which types of monitors citizens trust, right, um, and improving the quality of information. And then finally, preventing meddling. So meddling is not going to reduce confidence in elections among all voters, but it might do so among losers, and that might be particularly problematic and lead to some of the violent outcomes that we've seen. So um, as I said, I'm going to now switch to the non-published results. So they, this should all be taken with a grain of salt. This is hot off the presses. Um, but I think some of the patterns are super interesting, and I'm excited to talk to you about um, some ongoing work. Um, so we've been exploring interventions now to improve trust in elections. So we are looking at citizens' uh, reactions to election reforms that increase high-quality um, election monitoring and whether that increases trust in elections, and exploring whether election reforms to prevent election meddling are politically feasible. So is there a, a base of support for election reforms to prevent meddling? As I mentioned, we saw a lot of anti-meddling types of legislation in Congress fail, and we wonder if that's because of a lack of support among uh, the base for those politicians, or is there some other political dynamic going on? Okay, um, so where did we start for this research? So rather than looking at big national level election results, we started with the observation that in the United States, there's surprising variation in state laws on election monitoring. So in the United States, election administration is highly decentralized. Each state sort of governs within certain constraints how their elections are carried out, including what types of election observers are allowed at their polling stations at different points in the election cycle. Um, so states can allow various types of monitors, international nonpartisan monitors, American nonpartisan monitors, and American monitors associated with political parties. Not all states allow all three of these at all points in the election cycle. Um, and in fact, somewhat surprisingly and out of step with good practice around the world, most American states allow American monitors associated with political parties, but restrict the nonpartisan, either international or, or uh, American nonpartisan monitors. Um, so this is an interesting observation, and we want to see how this um, plays out among citizens' trust in different states' election results. Um, so... The Carter Center, as I mentioned, is this organization associated with Jimmy Carter who's done work on democracy promotion and election monitoring around the world. They've started to dip their toe into the U.S. case a bit. Um, they're still um, 
not doing full-blown observation of U.S. elections. They're still mostly a foreign policy organization. Um, but they did produce this report combing through all states in the U.S.'s election laws and identifying which types of monitors are allowed in each state according to that state's law at different parts in the election cycle. I didn't reproduce the whole report here. I just wanted to give you an example of the type of variation. So you can see Alabama there only allows partisan citizen observers. So these are citizens affiliated with political parties can get approved to go to um, election day, observe the count, observe polling stations, can observe post-election procedures and can observe pre-election procedures. Um, but only partisan monitors, none of the other nonpartisan types of monitors. On the other hand, you can see Arizona allows a more exhaustive list of monitors pre-election, but then only partisan monitors on election day and afterwards. Um, and then you can see California and Colorado down there allow all types of monitors at all points in the election cycle. So this is just to show you there's a lot of variation. And our study that we just carried out around the midterm elections exploited the fact that there's this variation and gave people different pieces of information about 10 states in the United States and what types of, of observers they allowed. And we, what, what we wanted to see was if we tell people that a state only allows partisan monitors, do people trust that state's elections more or less than if we told them nothing at all about that state's monitor monitoring laws or if we told them about that other types of monitors were allowed. So I'll show you what those results look like. Okay, so we fielded this experiment around the 2022 midterms. We asked Americans about 10 different states' elections, and we randomly assigned our participants to hear about different monitoring types. So again, the outcome we're interested in is does information about monitoring increase or decrease people's confidence in the elections? Okay, so these are the results. So on the bottom, you can see the far left is the control condition. So these people were just asked, do you trust the election results in Kansas? No, no information about that Kansas allows partisan monitors, nonpartisan monitors, just purely, do you trust Kansas's elections? Then you can see some states we, we said allowed all three types, international, domestic, nonpartisan, and domestic partisan. Some we told different combinations, and some we just told them uniquely nonpartisan U.S. monitors are allowed only, international nonpartisan monitors are allowed only, or just partisan monitors. So I think these results are pretty heartening because the tallest dot there, the one that increases confidence in a state's elections the most, is if that state only allows American nonpartisan monitors. Far and away, that's the biggest confidence boost for a state's elections. On the flip side, the type of monitoring law that decreases trust the most is if you only allow partisan monitors. Okay, so there's a very clear desire or implication of these results, which is that if we were to suggest a change or an electoral reform to states, is that you should encourage nonpartisan observer groups to monitor your elections and potentially do away with these party observers, that those are decreasing trust in elections. Um, so that's one potential implication from these results. We're digging more into them, but we thought this was 
um, a good sign for American democracy that nonpartisan observers increase trust. Um, we thought through some of the challenges. Um, it's important to note that the effect is similar for both Republicans and Democrats. Um, so if we look in our data, both Republicans and Democrats' confidence in elections is improved the most when they're reading about a state that only allows nonpartisan U.S. monitors, and it's decreased the most when they hear a state only allows party-affiliated monitors. Um, so that's a bipartisan consensus um, of which we have a few these days. Um, so there's sort of two questions that I think if we were to suggest this as a policy solution, how do we build up U.S. capacity for nonpartisan election observation? So actually, we don't have this in the United States. This is actually something that other countries have a lot more of than the United States does. We don't have a ton of um, domestic-focused organizations that are um, focused on improving confidence in U.S. elections. Um, and then finally, all of this is great when people don't know very much about election monitors, but the question is, if this were to become a big solution that was talked a lot about in the news media, would it immediately become politicized and therefore lose some of its ability to increase confidence in elections? So I think figuring out those dynamics would be important if we actually wanted to implement this kind of change. Okay, um, so the final thing we are looking at is trying to understand the types of electoral reforms that countries are initiating to protect their elections from foreign meddling. Um, so we also asked Americans in a separate study about their support for different types of electoral reforms to prevent foreign intrusions on elections. Um, so we fielded a pilot experiment around the 2020 presidential elections. Um, and again, in a, I think, positive sign for American democracy, there was high bipartisan support for these reforms. So let me just um, take like five more minutes here to talk to you about these um, anti-meddling policy dynamics, and then I'll, I'll close. So I mentioned some of the electoral reforms that had been attempted after the 2016 um, uh, episode of Russian meddling. So there were tons and tons of hearings about um, election meddling at the 2020 uh, 2016 election. Um, so uh, during a Senate hearing in 2019, so these were hearings that were ongoing uh, into 2019 about foreign meddling, um, and in particular about what the U.S. should do about it. So um, Senator Coons asked uh, Attorney General Bill Barr, going forward, what if a foreign adversary offers a presidential candidate dirt on a competitor in 2020? Do you agree with me that the campaign should immediately contact the FBI. So right now, the, this is not something that is required according to U.S. Uh, election law. Uh, so from what I understand, Bill Barr hesitated but did say yes. Um, so, so he was, yes. I, I, that picture may or may not be directly linked to this hearing. So just, <laughs> um, it was more reflection that it was reported there was some hesitation, and I thought that looked like a picture of, of him hesitating. Um, so he did, he did say yes, but there was some hesitation that I think is reflected more generally in, again, the political dynamics after 2016 for people associated with the Republican Party that benefited potentially from that um, 
Russian influence at the time. And again, these dynamics that are winners of elections that win because of some help from a foreign uh, actor, are they really then going to take steps to prevent future intrusions in elections? Um, and so I think these were uh, the topics of conversation um, uh, during this um, immediate period after the 2016 um, intrusion. Um, so here's just a smattering of some of the attempts to pass um, anti-meddling bills. So we had the Foreign Influence Reporting and Elections Act, which was the subject of that 2019 hearing. There was the Securing America's Federal Elections Act, Stopping Harmful. All of these have like cute little acronyms. All of these had different policy interventions associated with them. And I'll show you some of the questions we asked, which give you an idea of the kinds of reforms that these um, bills were trying to um, enact. Um, and there's lots of variation around the world as well. So we're actually doing this project not just to study U.S. elections, but trying to understand globally what countries are doing to protect their elections from foreign meddling. Um, so we are in the process of building some theory. We think these election reforms are most likely to occur when the threat environment is high. So if a country doesn't perceive any threats to their election, they're less likely to actually try to pass any of these reforms, which makes sense. Um, but we think importantly, these reforms are most likely to occur if meddling stands to benefit the opposition. So if the party in power thinks they're going to benefit, they're not going to enact these reforms, even if the threat environment is high, because the threat benefits them. Um, if the threat environment is high, but it benefits the opposition, that's when we're going to see countries start to act. So that's what we're trying to understand in our data. Now, somewhat surprisingly, our citizen surveys don't reflect these dynamics as much, and I'll show you. So we did this pilot experiment where we asked people to imagine the 2024 presidential election, and we said, you know, um, a bipartisan group of legislators or a group of Democratic legislators or a group of Republican legislators has proposed a new bill designed to defend U.S. elections from foreign influence. So they were asked to imagine this hypothetical scenario. And then they were asked to give their opinion on some of the changes that the election law proposed in the bill. So these questions reflect some of the changes in reality that had been proposed since the 2016 election. So what do these anti-meddling reforms look like? So it could be rules about campaigns reporting contact with agents of foreign governments. Could be restrictions on political campaigns from taking money from foreign entities. Um, it could be restrictions on campaigns communicating directly with agents of foreign governments. And then finally, we suggested there could be a new spending proposal to allocate a billion dollars to increase cybersecurity operations designed to detect these kinds of attacks that might um, uh, affect U.S. elections. Um, so we look at these uh, responses individually to each of these questions, and then we also just create an average over all of them to see kind of what the average level of support for these kinds of reforms are. Okay, so here's the good news. Um, each of those um, questions, you could either strongly oppose, somewhat oppose, neither support nor oppose, somewhat support or strongly support. And it looks like for each of those types of policies, American support is quite high, right? So we have more than half 
for almost each of those things are strongly supporting, with another good 20 to 30% somewhat supporting um, and another 20 to 30% neither supporting nor opposing. Said another way, very few people are opposing these reforms, right? So this seems to have some, some, a good level of support. And interestingly enough, when we break it down by Trump supporters and Biden supporters, it doesn't matter who proposes the reform, right? The support is high and pretty stable, no matter if it's a bipartisan group, a Democratic group, or a Republican group. Um, you can see from the red bar that Trump supporters have slightly lower support for these reforms than Biden supporters, but it's not hugely different. There's still pretty good bipartisan uh, base of support for these policies. Okay, so support for reforms to protect elections from foreign threats appear high in the U.S., regardless of who proposes the legislation, which is good news for protecting U.S. elections. Um, some other results that I didn't mention... Um, showed that actually uh, these results held regardless of who we told them benefited from the meddling. So that's also surprising and good. Um, and then finally, the threat environment seemed to matter, but only for Trump supporters. So I told you Trump supporters' um, support for these policies was somewhat lower than Biden supporters. But when we told Trump supporters that there was a big threat from foreign adversaries, their support jumped up to the level of Biden supporters. So it looks like um, there's high levels of support and that it's responsive um, rationally to outside threats. Okay, so going back to this idea that citizens' trust in elections matters for voting, protests, and countries' trajectories, we wanna do things to improve confidence in elections. Um, Foreign influences affect trust under certain conditions. And to increase trust, we looked at two different types of interventions, a focus on reforms that could prioritize trust-enhancing foreign influences or domestic influences, if that's who citizens trust more than international uh, observer groups. And then finally, focus on reforms that would prevent malign foreign influences, especially if there's bipartisan support for such reforms. I'm going to stop there. Um, I'm very happy to answer any questions about this or any other research that I am doing. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.